once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young a superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely... Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. Okay, it is August. It is really hot. Um, hashtag climate change. And we are here, we gather here today to discuss a topic that I really like. Gopal, you, rec- you, you suggested this topic. Um, lay it out for us. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, throughout chess history, like, we have certain players that, you know, both you and I, we feel that are just underrated or underappreciated in some way. Um, you know, so there are a few names in here that, you know, you might think, well, how that guy's so famous, how could he be underrated? But then they would definitely fall into the underappreciated category. Right. Yes. I, I think that to me, this is a really interesting topic because first of all, let's be honest, there was a huge chess boom recently. So like, there's a lot of people who are just coming to the game. Mm-hmm. And because of the available content in media that exists, I think a lot of these names might not even be on their radar, like this new generation, right? I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> but second, but second, you know, even, um, you know, sort of students of the game, I don't know the right word for it, but even players who've been around the block a few times, you know, I think these names might still be interesting. You know, if you if you pop into like a, a popular a popular bookstore, you might not find too many games or or even works by these particular players. Um, so I'm really excited to just dive right in. What who, who's first on your list, and why did they make the list? Um, Smizlov was first on my list because I knew I had to beat you to the punch. <laughs> you know, it, so story for our listeners. This is the true story. Gopal suggested this topic and then we had our first conversation about it and he asked me, you know, who you got. And I immediately said Vasily Smyslov, like immediately. He was the first name that popped into my head um, Mm -hmm. from, from chess history. So why did, why does he appear here for you? Um, you know, so he had what, like three attempts at the world championship. I mean, like all of them were like great matches. Uh, and I mean, he was world champion for only one year. Um, so kind of like how Max Erva would, you know, fall into that category. Um, you know, I feel like in many ways, Smyslov, like being world champion in the fifties, kind of um, underappreciated in that sense. But like, you know, there are just so many things I could say about him. Um, the style is so original, so unique. Um I mean, would you rather I explain my reasons first and then we can dive into them later? Or do you want me to explain as I go? 
Uh, it's up to you. You know, I think we have some ideas to present about Smyslov. So, you know, okay. namely, uh, what what sort of brings him here on this list, and also some of the the types of games that we saw, right? Or the types of games that you yeah. threw into into our little preparation study here, right? Which we actually did this time. So, <laughs> what do you mean we prepare? extensively oh, for every, yeah, for every I, I, episode. Yeah, you know, just... Well, we're so busy preparing, it's just kind of like a blur, right? Right. Um, so, okay, stylistically, one thing I really love... I mean, it's like, if if somebody like Kramnik calls you, like, the closest thing to the truth in chess, I mean, we, get, we gotta, like, sit up and pay attention, right? Right, um, grades, yeah. Yeah, the way he would navigate all sorts of positions like static dynamic irrational um you know just anything like he really just made it seem ultra logical and almost effortless to a degree you yeah know, there was like a, a sense of clarity profound. almost right yeah exactly kind of like um a less violent fisher like fisher was also one to, to strive for clarity as well um but yeah, um, there's that. And like, also to me, his style is like very original. Like he, I think not enough credit goes to him in terms of like his uh, opening innovations. Um, oftentimes he like interpreted the event, the opening in a very original manner, sometimes a bit more original than good. And uh, it was always in a way that maybe let his, uh, you know, playing characteristics the the best qualities of his playing characteristics sh- uh, shine through um you know like a lot of people such as like karpov or petrosian you know you could sense like an influence from nimzovich or capablanca or something um but smizlov and and uh, okay of course kasparov like had alyekin's best game collection as his bedside book when he was a kid but smizlov is very hard to pin down you know you know, I, it's interesting because I got that impression too. I think I think I mentioned this to you as well when we were preparing. But the first <laughs> one of the very first books, chess books in general that I played through, and particularly games collections, was Smyslov's best games. I always forget if mm-hmm. it was 140 or 125 best 25, games. 25, I believe. I think you're right, yeah. And you kind of get that sense, you know, that he had um, this very... Uh, well, as we mentioned, clear and simple, but also surprisingly like um, original approach, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in chess, I think we use those terms almost in a contradictory fashion, where originality does not necessarily equate with like clarity or simplicity. Mm-hmm. But I think Smyslov somehow found a way to use them both very well. Right. And, and of course, it doesn't have to be so black and white. Like being a world champion, obviously, you're incredibly versatile and like you can channel like extremes of either aspect at any time, you know? Yeah. So you were mentioning about his opening innovations and his, his uh, original style of handling the opening. Is there one in particular that stands out to you? Uh, I mean, man, that's, that's really difficult. Like I wouldn't even say it's like one in particular, just cause like they're so, I mean, it's funny. I just said they're like, underappreciated innovations, but they're like kind of, they live almost rent free in my mind. Uh, I mean, of course (laughs) his ideas like in the Grunfeld, 
Um, the Rui Lopez for black, he introduced so many interesting schemes there. Um, also the Slav, like he, he could, you know, he was playing a lot of like classical type, Slav type lines, like with DC four. And then if white played it early E three, um, he had played a lot of those Schlechter Slavs with G six. Uh, like he won a famous game against Arthur Bisguire. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th- those are interesting, but like, for me, it's more of those, uh, of course, Catalan and, and, and I know you love those Mislav Kings Indian for many years as white. Yeah. I, I did play that for many years and even to this day, I'll, I'll bust it out every now and then. I mean, right. Uh, you know, any opportunity you get to open the H file or shove your H pawn as the case may be, sign me up. Well, that's okay. That's, that's just you, but anyway, uh, <laughs> and alpha it's, zero. It's funny before I come, before I like come back to that, like, cause we did include a Smizlov, um, uh, game in the study with the Smizlov Kings Indian. Um, it was so quiet, uh, just the, the manner in which he won. And so, you know, the, when I heard your H pawn and just kind of a direct contradiction to the character of this game, it reminded me of a meme I saw on Instagram today that said, may all your Delulu come true, true. <laughs> and I wish that for you, my friend. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, anyway, but like we need that meme within with like a, a frozen image of the final position of um, of Smith's Love Fuller. Oh God, yeah, that's like a that's really yeah that that uh, as the children would say hits differently in many ways. Um, <laughs> like I mean, I, I personally love the Kings Indian. I know some people are really not about that life as the children also would say. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, may your attacking Delulus, they did not come true, true in this game. No, they definitely, definitely not, not as the, not as the Kings Indian player. Correct. No, no, definitely not. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, like, so what I was going to say about that is kind of not even necessarily his, um, you know, iconic or like regular contributions, but uh, some of the experiments that he had. Um, this always fascinates me with with a lot of world champions because, like, if you look closely at the historical context of like the games that they've played or their tournaments or you know what was topical at that time or what literature was released at the time, you can find a lot of uh, rationale <clears throat> for why they would play the things that they play. But with Smyslov, it just kind of felt like. Oh, you know, I'll just play the Chigorin defense here and there. Or like we had in one of our uh, preparation studies, a very original Leningrad Dutch against Portish where. Right. With know, this strange like Bishop E6 to F7. Stonewall. Yes. Yeah, Stonewall yeah. hybrid with the early Bishop E6. Normally, you know, there was King H8 to prepare Bishop E6 to go Bishop G8, but just very original way of uh, playing. Yeah. And by the way, we should mention, uh, we will put, are edited because the original study, I think, is going to have some uh, inappropriate comments from yours truly and uh, yours other truly. Uh, but we will put an edited study up uh, with all of the um, <laughs> games that we're discussing today, so you can check it out, or if you want, uh, play along with them as we are discussing that particular game. Um, the one you're referring to at the moment was uh, Portish Mislav, correct? Right. And in this game, essentially, uh, Black uh, allows the early capture of his light square bishop in a Stonewall-ish structure. In a Stonewall, Lenin, it started off as a yeah. Leningrad Dutch, and then it morphed into a Stonewall. 
Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, which is a very interesting idea. It just seems so ugly. But like, you know, in the Stonewall Dutch, uh, right? The light squared bishop is like one of the worst pieces. Um, yeah. And so he, has he, a firm he plays this like bishop e6, f7 sequence. So it's bishop e6, knight e5, bishop f7. And of course, mm-hmm. it later just gets captured on f7. Right. And, um, you know, sort of the point is, right? You You have all your pawns on the white squares hemming in the bishop anyway. So mm-hmm. just get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, that this was something that he, <clears throat> actually, now that I think about it, I mean, this is totally something that he did in the Schlechter Slav. So, like, the early lines after C4, C6, let's say Knight F3 or Knight C3 and then E3. You know, it's very common to play Bishop G4, take F3, and then start putting the pawns on the light squares. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, even as exotic as this approach is, like, there is, like, a certain, you know, positional logic that that it follows you know but it's just you don't see it applied too much in this setting and the viewers will you know if you have any familiarity with either of these openings you'll know what we're talking about yeah the one the one that you dropped in the study that really struck me in terms of um like the opening was smislav romanishin Mm -hmm. uh i don't see the year here here it is, uh, 1976, Moscow, 1976. Um, just another, like you see that knight on H3, right? And it's and it's uh, almost a little, I mean, there's definitely some logic to it, but um, it's almost a little like, okay, you know, what, what has he got in mind here? You know, you sort of recognize even at that early stage that we're going to see some fun, some fun ideas. Yeah, I mean, so the, like, I, and, and yeah, th- this was... Uh, my term that I, I had coined from um, an old like book project I was working on that later morphed into a different one. But um, I had a section in there called the canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, basically like it was about selecting an opening that where the, like basically where the character of play is stable enough so that you leave it open to interpretation, you know, in this, era right of chessboard courses and like all these like super forcing lines um it's hard it just feels a bit harder in a lot more cases to play dynamically right mm-hmm. or i'm sorry organically rather and the close sicilian um is like an example of how smizlov could let a lot of his uh playing characteristics come to the forefront um i mean he's even played moves like knight f3 um this was a he won a famous game against uh Kotov um I believe it was 1943 or 41. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean it's not a great move uh cuz it blocks the F pawn. <clears throat> uh although like sometimes you know let's say if the bishop were on E7 like with E6 bishop E7 and knight F6 there's knight G5 and F4 but like you'd probably prefer not to block that pawn. Um he's played the other moves as well. Um but yeah Knight h3, you know, typical, typical Smyslov. Right. I, I almost think of it as like one of those early anti-Sicilian interpretations where, you know, the famous position in the Nidorf where the, there's like a, a moment where almost any, almost every legal move for white is like playable. You yeah. Like on move about? six when black plays a6. Exactly. Move six, <laughs> a6, and then white, almost every legal move is completely playable and has been tried. Right. <laughs> By the way, can we have a quick sidetrack about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Sidebars are always welcome. Okay. 
Um, so there was a guy, an Englishman named Decker, I believe, mm-hmm. and he had um, written uh, Nigel Short. Uh, you know, around the time Short was preparing for his match with Kasparov, and so he lent him and he sent him this uh, lengthy analysis of this line against the Nidorf, and it was the very controversial move six G four. So okay, yeah. a move that's gambiting upon. He called it the Decker Gambit. So <clears throat> he showed all these lines, like what would happen if Black plays E5, E6, B5, and, and H6, all that stuff. But then at the end of the letter, you know, there, I think it was like Bishop take G4, F3 with compensation. <laughs> <laughs> that was his entire conclusion of the line. Like, yes. what if they take the pawn and just play F3 with compensation? Yes. No and my in, impression of it was that, like, the everything else was just analyzed in a lot more detail right of course so true or not um you know it's a funny story that is a really good story but anyway back to this romanesian game yeah i mean i i guess i guess my impression and and i'm glad you chose this one in particular to in, include in the study here um my impression was that the the canvas if you will like the the blank opening canvas led to some really uh, I mean, very typical uh, Smyslov style, where it's just like a very direct, like, you know, the move. The move that stands out to me actually is um, is C three seventeen C three, just like a very direct yeah. way of handling the position. Um, if that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, what struck me about this game was like how you know Black's play definitely appeared overly artificial, like around move ten, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, Smyslov just it handled it, like, with such clarity. And, and you would wonder, like, oh, like, okay, like, yeah, totally. This is the way you should have handled this position, Chess. But, like, as you know, um, when you have so many things to focus your attention on uh, during a chess game, it's not so easy to pay attention to what you should actually be focusing on in the first place. And that's especially in a position that that was so non-standard like this one. I think that, I think that rings true for like a lot of, a lot of students, you know, you're, you're a coach too. One of the things when you have the more complex, the position, the harder it becomes to make priorities, right. To like set Mm -hmm. a list of priorities and decide, you know, what this, then that, then this, I think that's what students struggle with for me, my experience the most. And it's true at every level, you know, like the beginner will be like, well, should I take my, my piece back on F3 uh, or should I be down three points, but have the pawns on F2, G2, H2 together in front of my king, you know, mm-hmm. should I play G2 takes F3 and get my piece back or should I keep my king together? And some of them will, will not do that because like, well, double pawns are bad and you shouldn't open your king. So I'll go down three points, you know? Um, but then, you know, as, as maybe you, the question they should have been asking is if they should quit chess. <laughs> Yes. Oh, uh, hashtag life lessons with Go Ball. That would be, that would be, I would, I would watch that reality show. 100. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. I, I'd watch it too. But no. So, like, again, getting back to 17C3, um, you know, you're, it sort of illustrates that point, right? You're absolutely correct. Like, you have this complex position with a variety of factors and just not just making a priority, but, um, approaching it with a very direct and clear idea, which of course, you know, you should always strive to do, but the way in which he managed to do that is uh, always very fun to watch as a, as a fan. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, I mean, 17 C3, like, yeah, looking back does make a lot of sense, but just the entire play, you know, just, uh, you feel like he, he really saw the the whole truth, you know? Yeah. Fitting that Kromnik quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like the whole game just kind of fit that quote. Yeah. And of course the other, the other, the other moment to point out was the one that we were dissecting like very briefly, right. Which is, um, Right here. Yeah, Move. this very surprising knight f4, like full, uh, like knight f4 is a very positionally desirable move. Right. Um, but like, yeah, he like ensuring the tactical great... tactical like uh, success of the move. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he supplemented it. You know, his uh, very crystal clear positional play with like amazing tactical vision spanning the whole board. Right. Yeah, so that's move 29, knight f4. It actually took us a, a second to work it out, so I would challenge the users when you go go check out um, Smith's Love. Smash that hamburger menu. Smash that hamburger right. menu, right? Yeah. Um, when you go check it out, see, if you, see, how, see how, uh, how well you can calculate. 29, knight f4, and then, of course, Ramanashin does not play 29, knight takes d4, which is interesting. Um, and, and there is a tactical point behind it, so see if you can work it out. Mm-hmm. The idea. It's actually really cool. Um, I'm curious, Gopal, did you spot it or or how did you uh, how did you stumble across the reputation? Um, combination of spot and remember, and then before I wanted to sound foolish, I turned on the computer, which confirmed <laughs> it. But but I, I did remember because I've seen this game like you know a couple of times. I don't remember exactly where, but sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and another thing about Smeeslov that I, I did want to talk about. Um, because I know I don't want to have any spoilers here, but we do have a let's say endgame composition adjacent uh, type mm-hmm. person. Yes, featured. Um, so Smizlov, uh, he was a composer. Like he composed a lot of studies starting at a young age. Um, but yeah, as Jan Timmen said, this is a craft that actually laid dormant throughout his his best years. He returned to it when he was already starting to go blind, which I believe he was already, he was showing some signs of this in the 80s. Really? And I did not know that. Yeah, he was starting to go blind. Um, and, like, I remember uh, Sarawan told a funny story about, like, how, you know, he saw the first great player he ever saw in person was Paul Karras and, mm-hmm. at a tournament. And the guy, he's playing this Canadian FM, very solid player. And then the guy plays Petrov against Karaz and Karaz plays D3. Uh, but then like beats him very smoothly. And like he said, the manner in which he's, he, um, you know, just finessed the pieces to their squares was just so uh, lovely to watch. And he assumed all elite players uh, move their pieces in like a very, you know, graceful manner. Um, <laughs> but he said the least graceful of these was Smizlov, who like, you know, came to the board, like shook his hand and then like, like the pawn fumbled to D4 and he slapped the clock and he would look like myopically at the score sheet to see if he would, had reached like time control. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, but that was, those were signs of his blindness. And despite that, he say, played yeah, vision issues, right? Yeah. He, he had won some tournaments up until the nineties. And then also he qualified for the candidates at the age of, to the what he he lost in the semifinal or quarterfinal of the candidates to Kasparov, but he beat Ribley. 
Yeah, I mean, cer- certainly one of the players with really impressive longevity. Yeah, but anyway, so uh, yeah, when he started to go blind, he like especially in the late eighties or sorry, late nineties and early two thousands when it was you know that's when he basically stopped playing chess. Um, mm. He composed quite a bit. Wow, and some beautiful, very beautiful problems. Yep, yet another reason why <clears throat> he belongs on this underrated, underappreciated list. Mm-hmm. I actually did not know that about him. I, you learned something new, even about your your own chess idol. I learned something new. Yeah, I'll, I'll put some in the preparation thingy. Nice, cool. Okay. Um, any final thoughts before we move on to number two? Number two was an, was another player actually who, when I brought him up, I learned something new. Um, I mean, I think if I say any more, we will just keep going. Right. Yeah, we can only massage that Smyslov so long. If you know what I mean. Oh yeah. So number two on, uh, I mentioned the name for, for me, I just have such tremendous respect for him as a chess author, uh, the author of one of my favorite all-time books, Zurich International 1953. Mm-hmm. Um, also incredible long, longevity. We were just mentioning that it's uh, David Bronstein mm-hmm. and you brought up something very interesting about Bronstein, which I was unaware of, uh, that he actually had quite a few uh, and, and mostly successful matches with chess computers over an extended period of time yeah um i did not research this well enough but um yeah i mean i could see just like kind of knowing bronstein and like just the quirky nature of his play like i could just see them see that being very interesting for him um more than it would be like other elite players you know yeah, it's 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 weird because you think of well, not not you, but me. When I think of Bronstein, I think of like the, you know, the heyday, the classic era of of like top level uh, Soviet chess. You know, the fifties and sixties. So to kind of associate his name with a game against Deep Blue feels almost like one of those like you know weird historical moments that are you have to almost like double check like did that actually happen? You know what I mean? Right, and yeah, definitely at the later end of his career because that was in the that was in like 96 that had to have been 96 right yeah i mean if, if i'm thinking about when deep blue was playing matches, yeah 1996 it, yeah it had to be in that range yeah the date should be there right that's yeah th- that was yeah. The, the date of the, that was like the same year as the first match wow so i with, mean with, with him and kaspar with deep blue and kaspar of course so this game that you've included here and and there's an interesting backstory behind the opening so I, I i'd love to hear you t- tell that as well but I'm curious, do you know, was this a training game for Deep Blue to play strong opponents sort of like prior to the match with Kasparov? I, I, I have no idea. Um, I mean, uh, back then, I believe like they were letting computers uh, compete in like open tournaments. Yeah, actually, um, interesting side note. I don't know if you know this. We just like within the last year, the rule was just changed so that chess computers can no longer enter open tournaments in the U.S. In the it's last like, year? Within the last year, yeah. What it's is like this? one of those 2002, all of a sudden? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that fascinating? Like one of those holdout rules from like, you know, 1975 or something where they would allow you to enter a computer in an open tournament as long as it was, you know, sort of designated as a computer. Um, but yeah. That's so bizarre. That rule has finally changed. But I mean, obviously organizers could prohibit computer usage. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you declared it, you were allowed, if you declared it and the organizer allowed it, 
yeah. you are legally allowed to, by the rules, allowed to um, enter a computer into an open tournament until 2023. I think I, I th- I'm pretty sure I have that correct. Gotcha. That's insane. But okay, <laughs> right. And they say chess rules are slow to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, uh, here I, I have an I have an interesting fun fact and. Please, I, I, yeah, if, if I'm on, wrong. Let me play the fun facts with Grupal, um music. Wait, we don't have that. Is it the car crash noise? Um, so, <laughs> that no, that's if I'm wrong. What was the last time a human beat a computer in like a regulation tournament time control type setting? I'm probably going to, I didn't, didn't. uh who was who was that? Um, okay, now are we talking match or like an actual like an open tournament type thing? Um, sort of. Uh, uh like like a man machine type man machine match. Yeah, exactly. Right, but or or a tournament. Let's say where there were several men's playing against several machines. Oh, um. I thought I remembered, and this is just like off the top of my head, that the last person to like defeat a computer was Ponomario. But I could be very wrong. good. Yes, in two thousand five. Really? Okay, I got that right. Yeah, it was it was an interesting game. I have it here, and maybe I'll just I'll add it to the preparation thingy. But um, yeah, he actually made a just an elementary blunder, like forgetting about en passant. There is a famous picture of him with his like hand covering his mouth in sort of an, uh, you know, O-H-E-double-L hockey sticks. I've, I've done that again, you know? Yeah, right. But he, um, he didn't win the match, but he won a game, right? He won a game in the match. Uh, or did he yeah, win the we'll, match? We'll get the stats guy on that, but I remember the game was decided based on a very odd oversight by the computer. Um, going for, like, Rook for two pieces, but, like, it was obviously, like, an elementary horizon error. Mm-hmm. Where it just like uh, the position, I'll just put it in here. The, um, the position did not warrant it. Right. Yeah. He just like, yeah, Ponomaryov was like nursing the advantage of an extra pawn, kind of like a, it looks like a pawn sacrifice that either today's computers would offer or like a very early Houdini would mm-hmm. type, would try to offer, just kind of maybe a little bit vague. Um, but yeah, anyway, that was, that was him. It's like but either so, a, a not quite strong enough engine would offer it or like the strongest engine <laughs> because they know how valuable that initiative is. Right, right. Yeah. But anyway, uh, with Bronstein and the computers. Um, yeah, yeah, so interesting. The, the, the game that you put in here, the one that I was referencing against the blue was another example sort of of the same thing where the computer is making the fundamental error of essentially overvaluing material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, almost like in this uh, Ponomaryov game that we were talking about. Exactly, right. Yeah, so if, if you want, the, I, I think the, the listeners would love to hear sort of the way you intro this game for me, essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, so he, he played the wing gambit, um, which, yeah, I mean, okay, these days... E4, like C5, yeah, B4, right? Right, E4, C5, B4. Um, you know, the, the idea that he used, there's a there is a really cool version of that with uh, two a three preparing B four, but um, so after B four take a three D five take queen take, um, you know Bronstein had played this wing gambit like I think countless times against computers uh, 
for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and so after E take queen take knight f3, so you know you don't blunder your rook with A take b4 queen a queen e5 like in the famous Shirazi game. <laughs> e5, um, A take b4 bishop b4. Um, I mean these aren't like my favorite moves for white. Uh, like yeah, knight f3 is okay. Um, and but yeah, a b4 I wasn't a fan of. But after bishop b4, he he played like. The most surprising move in the world, rook a3, mm-hmm. which it, it's a funny looking move because it's totally pointless if you just ignore it with regular development, right? Right, knight f6 or knight c6, yeah, but uh, the computers were greatly tempted by bishop a3, and then after bishop take a3, it's not easy at all, um, to play, you know. Uh, I mean, I still think black should be on top, but. Uh, to castle conveniently and not lose any more, you know, material would, you know, it's a little bit of a tall order. For instance, let's say I played knight c6, so the idea is to play knight e7 and also guard e5. This would be no good because of knight c3, queen a5, knight b5, and then we're landing a check on, on d6. Right. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, white has certain play. Um, and the game itself ended in like quite a thrilling draw, which uh, you know you you get your you viewers would see. All of the viewers who are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. This reminds me of for, formerly, I guess, maybe still renowned anti-computer expert Roman Jinjihashvili, mm-hmm. um, who used to play like ICC bots all the time in in like the early two thousands. You remember this? Yes, and. Um, I recall he, he even published a game and I don't remember the exact details, but the gist of it was he like sacks his queen very early for a knight and something. I don't remember if it was a knight and a bishop, two knights, a knight and a few pawns, but it wasn't anywhere near enough for the queen. I think it might've been like a knight and a couple pawns, right? Mm-hmm. But then essentially what the, the point of the sack is it allows him to like lock, lock the entire position. So he's like an, an anti-computer expert, right? And he just draws the computer with ease because the, the way the sacrifice occurs allows the pawn structure to become completely closed. So like there's zero pawn break, like even there's not even like a legal pawn break. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and he's got the two knights, which obviously can maneuver wherever they want in the closed position and sort of defend any would be sacrifices. And there's like yeah. just enough material that you can't sack to, to open it, if that makes sense. There is a famous game, uh, if, if I find it, I'll put it in here, where like Nakamura does the same thing with like a couple of exchange sacrifices. Mm-hmm. But he takes advantage of uh, the computer's uh, contempt mode being turned on. So <laughs> like is? so like trying to avoid like all these 50 move rule draws like it will push these pawns oh, like just okay. sacking pawns but for no reason um just to avoid like a 50 move rule type draw and then, right so the computer is playing to avoid a draw at at absolutely all costs but yeah but playing for a loss in effect right right because it has to it has to follow the contempt mode so right so because of the closed nature of the position any any and all of the of the of the avoid draw moves are going to, to fail essentially. Yeah, just lo- almost lose immediately if you will. Right. Wow. 
So uh, yeah, so Bronstein, one of the early computer computer players, the the one that also I found interesting, maybe you can tell me a little bit about this, was Bronstein versus M20, the computer named M20 from 1963. Like I'm I'm almost shocked there was even a chess playing computer at that time. The yeah, the Moscow Mathematics Institute, apparently. Um I feel like I used to know a bit more about this game. I just always thought it was it was a pretty game um, mm. ever since I was a kid. Like So with this King's Gambit, um, Bronstein plays Knight F3. Uh, I mean, funny thing about this was like, I think Bronstein himself said, maybe it was af- like years after this game, um, Knight F3 is, is good if you want to draw, but Bishop C4 is a better try if you want to win. Um, I think maybe because like... It, Knight f3, d5, ed5, knight f6, uh, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't content with, uh, but and bishop c4 maybe felt wasn't sufficiently explored. I mean, Bronstein's opening contributions, uh, like Smyslov's, are always very interesting to, to dig up. Um, so m20 plays one of the, the, I would say, probably the easier or like more topical recommendations uh, of today's time. Um, I feel like it's a very compact recommendation, this knight f3, knight f6, the shallops defense or whatever. Um, but after e5, it, it plays knight g4. Like knight h5 is the move to right, hang right. on to f4. And you, you know that knight can be reinforced with g6, you know, g5 maybe if you're feeling frisky. Um, yeah, clearly, but, I think showing some of the limitations of early computers, right? Right. I mean, lack not not just lack of openings book, but also like lack of sense of where the piece belongs. Right, and like yeah, Bronstein could have he could have played like maybe in a more prosaic fashion. Like, don't you feel like on move uh, seven when he played queen e two, he could have just captured and play like bishop c four and castle. That's like a king's gambit player's dream. Right, exactly. Yep. But I think he he had like in mind. Um, I mean, of course, like what he did against Deep Blue. Like uh, you know, he he was such a great player. Of course, he knows that you know the rook doesn't have to be captured on move seven. But I I I feel like maybe his imagination wanted to test the computer with like a, a rather fanciful sequence of moves. For instance, after ninety four on move eight, perhaps exploiting the com- the computer's um, materialistic nature. The computer plays knight e3. And after check, he goes bishop d2. <laughs> you get the sense at this moment in the game, after 10 moves, that it's almost like he's toying with the machine, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, yes, yes, yes. Take all my stuff. <laughs> right. And and actually, so, yeah, on move, yeah, the king just walks the plank. I, I believe if king e8, I, I wonder if the computer only saw Contempt. a draw. <laughs> But yeah, like he could do this uh, knight f6 check, king e7, and then even like some knight g5, I believe. Continuing the game. Yeah, queen h5. I mean, it looks quite scary. Um, but yeah, you'd have to analyze that. Um, but yeah, after king e6, he just yeah walked the plank in the worst possible way. And it was very cute checkmate at the end. And And what I liked too about the end was like, you know, of course, mate in one is better than taking the queen. But I mean... I just still find the final position amusing. It is very satisfying. I agree. <laughs> yeah. 
So Bronstein, interesting because, you know, I, I had sort of thrown him on my list for his contributions as a, as a chess author and writer. Um, but it's fascinating to see uh, his, his efforts against machines, uh, especially mm-hmm. early machines and um, some of the ways that he dispatched them, I guess would be the best way to put it. Right. Um, also, it just you, you had mentioned literature, and I just want to touch on um, his game with Winnie Water from... Uh, 200 open games. I believe that's another book that you enjoyed, right? Yes. Um, we've, uh, we've posted the accompanying story in the notes. And so it's very uh, cool to like play along with it just because it's um, such a, a charming little story. Very, very clever, um, very clever lesson. And like, I I've used this game um, to teach a lot of students, like in terms of like Things like schematic thinking, uh, planning, or like navigating a blocked position, um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I, what I like about this one in particular is almost the, um, the I don't want to say like taunting nature of the story, right? Um, but the back and forth regarding uh, the, the lengthy plan. Now, I, I'm trying to understand this. Is this a game... So it seems like this is a game he's playing away from the tournament itself, right? Like this is an auxiliary game. No, no, no. So he's playing um, in the game with Winnie Water. He's, mm-hmm. It's not like a remote game. Um, he's at the tournament, but alongside the tournament is like a gathering of uh, correspondence players. Right, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, where he says like for them, a game where more than one move a day is played is a wonder. Um, <laughs> right. I never, but yeah, yeah. Um, he so yeah he basically has this conversation with somebody who, who he knows that's a, a chief at the uh, Institute of Ge- Geological Research or something like that, um, mm. and they're just having a conversation about the game in between moves, like the guys oh, asking about the why'd ongoing you do this? game, the, the game that's currently right. Yeah, why right. why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? And Bronstein's like, oh, excuse me, I have to go. My opponent has moved, and yeah. It's it's a it's a nice story. Yeah, so we'll leave that there. I, I agree; it is a very interesting one. Um, any final thoughts on him before we move on to the next one on your uh, on your list? I, I, I like the dream dream story you told as well. Yeah, this game. Um, yeah, Bronstein apparently played this game in his dream and wrote it down, but then he later denied it. So I don't know what, what's <laughs> going on. So there's some questioning as to whether or not it actually uh, exists. Right? I, you know, I don't know why somebody would deny something so creative. It, it, it reminded me of the time when your, your mother denied uh, the, the manner in which she re- uh, remembers her initials. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah. Um, Classic JBM. So queen e4 in this position is a really fascinating move because, I mean, it almost feels like it shouldn't exist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, how is this? Uh, I mean, basically just a winning move, right? Out of a shot in the dark winning move just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Unpinning the knight. So enabling knight d5, mm-hmm. threatening bishop takes c3. And then in order to buck the queen off of e4 like you got to play knight d2 but that hangs the bishop on h4 so there's so much going on and um, you don't have time to include bishop f6 because simply bishop, bishop c3, c3 and if you have yeah, queen d1 then knight take d5 
Right. And the position collapses. So everything yeah, remarkable motif. Apart. Yeah, very nice motif. So that, that'll be in the study under the chapter titled Bronstein's Dream Game. Um, oh, and, and by the way, I just want to make, sorry, just mm-hmm. make a quick statement about this. I don't know if we said this earlier, but I know we've said this a lot between ourselves. A lot of these games, you know, you might wonder, like, why have you guys selected these games? Like, you know, uh, a lot of them are, like, just very special to us or unique to us or underappreciated games in general. Because, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners might not have even seen some of the uh, best hits of these players. But, you know, we've selected these games very intentionally to show off certain aspects of their style or play. Right. Yeah. Certainly I would not say we're, we're picking, you know, we're picking to present the most famous games by any of, any of the players mentioned. Or the greatest hits even, you know, even the greatest hits, right. Even some of their best games, it's more an an illustrative about one of the aspects that we uh, feel was underrated or unappreciated. Mm -hmm. Underappreciated maybe even. Um, So the next person on my list would be Gaiula Breyer. Yeah, this was an interesting name for me um, because, you know, of course, I'm familiar with some of the the variations that bear his namesake, particularly, I think, the most famous one being in the the Spanish, Roy Lopez, right? Right. Um, but I, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't really gone too deeply on him as a player. So what, what brought him to your mind for this particular topic? Um, I mean, just like if you think about the timeline of his life um he passed away i believe when was it in like 1923 mm-hmm. um he based like the the chess that you see was just so revolutionary for that time um he in many ways uh, oh he died in 1921 okay um i believe he was what was that 28 years old yeah very young yeah, very young. Um, 20 or 29. He died from heart disease. Um, yeah, so, like, he was one of the original, like, hyper-modern uh, players. A uh, lot of unique ideas, like, for instance, the Brayer variation, where on move 9 of the closed Roy Lopez, white plays H3, black plays knight B8. Um, very controversial move at that time, and uh, a move that wasn't really appreciated uh, for a while, um, up until like maybe the forties when, um, you know, uh, I believe Furman and Borisenko, uh, revived it in some Soviet tournaments. Mm-hmm. And then like later Boris Spassky played it, maybe Karpov a few times. And then like, it had a big explosion of popularity in the 2010s. Um, so yes, I remember that unfortunately, right around the time when I was studying and, and playing it quite frequently. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, a must like that, like specifically that variation or like that family of variations was told, um, was, uh, uh, grandmaster Nikola Mitkov told me a lifetime. He's a lifetime E4, E5 player himself, by the way, mm-hmm. that such variations are like a must play for like one to three years. Like, really? What was his reasoning that. there? Um, just because the play is so rich, it teaches you a lot about like maneuvering, um, mm-hmm. you know, planning, like you defend it's, it's very solid. It's very dependable. Um, you know, there are just so many good things you could, you could say about it. Interesting. Okay. 
So Breyer makes this list. Is it primarily his opening contributions or were there other elements as well? Well, so it's not only that. I mean, you know, God, we could just rave about how revolutionary that move was at that time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. Like, but uh, just, yeah, the, the style in general that that he played, um, his, perhaps his most famous game, um, one where we have taken the liberty of uh, including one of the players' really no, well-known games was his game with Johannes Esser, um, where he launches a very modern looking attack for a game played in 1917. Right. I mean, we remember the romantic era, right? Where, where attack was the name of the day. And, and the manner in which he launched the attack was interesting because he, he did it with a slow buildup. Right. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. This was not really the romantic era of chess. You know, this was post post my system, you know, post Steinitz. It was yeah, Um, post Steinitz and, Tarash. Like, I think my system was emerging, right, at this time. 1917? Well, now, see, we did such great research, we don't even know when my system was published. Nah, who cares? But I, I believe it was before this, if I remember correctly. I, I want to say off the top of my head, 1905. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. 1925. Now. 1925, you checked it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so right before my system. Um, but yeah, really, really, like, well fa- well-founded positional attack. Um so uh, yeah, I really I really ap- appreciate this game. If, if our users check it out, um, it's it's a cool, uh, almost I guess I would say um, it, it feels more modern than it should be. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I and and really I think what says it all is like Brayer like his name might be mentioned in passing um, mm-hmm. here and there. And like, of course, cause he passed away so young, um, you know, yeah, it's hard to leave such a mark as, as someone with the longevity of a Bronstein or a, or a right. And, and like also the, like he died of heart disease, like, you know, health problems had plagued him, you know, throughout his life. Like who really knows um, what right. could have been. And yeah, the thing with, um, with that is like you, everybody knows about Reti, like being one of the, primary hypermodern players and mm-hmm. uh in his writing you can really feel the admiration uh that he speaks uh of Brayer. like in fact we have two games annotated by Reti here um his game versus Esser that we talked about and then uh Havasi yeah the the Havasi game I think was an interesting one as well because you you brought up the point about um Brayer liking to keep his his bishops behind his pawns um, right which was also interesting you know we normally think of getting them getting them outside the pawn chain right the reasoning that reti states was to avoid early exchanges and you know prepare like a counterattack at his leisure right right and and you can see it actually like really play out in the in the havasi game with a in my opinion a very elegant finish as well um but yeah, really, uh, really sort of fascinating uh, conceptual idea that keeping the bishops behind the pawn early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So we have a couple Brayer games in there for um, users to play through. Uh, I, I think you know I'm sort of on board with you where uh, it's it's one of those players who definitely bears looking at and uh, and in particular because of the ahead of his time component, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, anything further to wrap up Brayer or should we move on to our final name on the on the ultimate list of underrated and under or unappreciated players? Uh, no, I think we can move on. You see what I did there with all the U's? Yeah. Over, I overplayed that one. Car crashed <laughs> out. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the last name on the list was one that was one that I think I, I had suggested, and then you immediately fired off a couple of PDFs to me, which were awesome. Um, and that is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. I believe it is Alois Watawa. Uh, yeah, I hope so. So I actually scoured the internet to the best of my ability, and I had a very, very difficult time finding any actual games from Watawa, which mm-hmm. makes sense because Watawa was really not known for his for his play, but instead for his compositions. Right. And I have a really distinct memory of my first introduction to a Watawa composition. It was um, Enemy of the Podcast, Fide Master Carl Boer. Uh, and I believe you yourself were visiting for a camp. And was it you who introduced the solution or the um, composition to uh, Carl? And I think I, I, I had, so I, I had heard, I had heard of it, um, or sorry, I'd, I'd heard of Watawa from, um, uh, also, enemy of the podcast, uh, Mezgin Amanov. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how he found out ab- about it, but I'd venture to guess that um, since Wotawa appears a lot in various Deveretsky books, um, you know, it, maybe that was his introduction. I mean, nowadays, of course, he's quite celebrated. But anyway, um, yeah, so I... I that was like my latest thing and Carl being very much into compositions and you being into perhaps the less helpful helpmate uh, type problems. Um, I figured we could all have a good time. So I don't, you don't, you don't enjoy we my helpmate uh, ones that I show you every now and then. Uh, no. Um, but so, Fair. yeah, we were in, I, I believe downtown Bloomington. Right. And then we, I was just picking out random problems and yeah, we were just trying to solve them. And yeah, just the the very striking originality. Um, yeah, I mean, but, you, you really feel differently when you've seen a Watawa composition. I don't know how to put it other than that. Do they it, hit differently? They, like they the yes. children say. Yes, as the children say, they hit differently. There's there's some element about them that is like very almost surprising, right? Which yeah. I think can be can be said truly of any like quality composition when you have that. Um, really satisfying aha moment, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So I, I think, you know, the one, the one that um, strikes me most, which we will definitely add to the study is the one where essentially. Um, well, I don't know what we could say without spoiling. Yeah, we, I don't want to give away. That's it was just the point. one that we did. Just the one that we did. We'll, we'll maybe include the ones the we talked about. Watawa 1960 is what it'll be listed as in the study, composed in 1960. But we don't want to give away a solution. That's correct. If only um, there was a Watawa 420. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, he did compose for a very long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm looking just at this one list of Watawa compositions, and I see you know, quite a lengthy composition career. Um, so... Wow, everyone, this is a Chess Underground exclusive. Are you saying that 420 is the key to Watawa's longevity? I strongly doubt it. I suspect it had more to do with, um, you know, other health health factors. Um, 
Yeah, I see. So I see compositions dating, if I'm reading this correctly, just from this one list that I have, 1935 to 64. And I'm, I'm sure that that's probably not the entire range of, of his comp- composing career. Uh-huh. Would be my best guess. Um, but yeah, we'll include some of our, our personal favorites from Watawa. I think, you know, what's interesting to me about them is they all involve some very like deeply intuitive element. You know, when I solve a Watawa composition, and I don't know if you, sh- you share this experience, you kind of sense the genesis of the idea fairly quickly, right? Right. Yeah. Like, I, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of like know what I'm looking meeting. at. Yes, Whereas others, you're just kind of like, what? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But then, you know, but then the, de- you know, as they say, the devil is in the details and, and really working out, okay, I have the genesis of the idea. The composition kind of gives me those tasty little morsels to point me where I, where I want to be looking. And then it's a matter of actually working it out. And what I really appreciate about that is that sort of mirrors a complex, like actual position in a tournament game, right? Right. Where you, you kind of, you have this like thread of the game, you have a, an understanding of, of the, the conversation of the game that has brought you to that point. So you kind of know where to be looking, you kind of know sort of what's going on. But then there's mm-hmm. like this really, this really nice finesse, right? All of these Watawa p- positions, they have these really nice finesses that almost unlock the sequence, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, if, you're a fan of, if you're a fan of tactics, if you're a fan of chess puzzles... If you're a fan of solving stuff, Gopal, I don't know if you remember, do you remember the chess-based Christmas puzzle competition? Uh, absolutely. I think they discontinued that. I don't, I don't remember seeing it the past few years, um, but that used to be one of my favorite things. Yeah, there was like a relic of the early 2000s. and maybe Yeah, they did it for 2010s. a while. I want to say, say it lasted up until maybe just a few years ago, although my memory could be serving me incorrectly. Um, but... You know, if you're a fan of that sort of thing, uh, if you if you really enjoy it, Watawa, look into him. Um, he's a, he's a f- phenomenal composer, and I always found the solutions to be of the of the highest quality, and frankly, of the most satisfying quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I agree. I mean, that's just all I can say is mm-hmm, because yeah. when something hits differently, um, <laughs> it it speaks for itself. The the different hit hit of the composition speaks for itself. Um, we should mention. Yeah, we should mention. Uh, I don't know if you saw. There was a an interesting tweet by uh, Mister Chess speaks for himself, uh, Hans Niemann. Um, oh Jesus! Where he mentioned uh, the you know the the World Cup is going on right now. The the FIDE mm-hmm. World Cup. We actually know who the finalists are. Have you been following this at all? The tournament. Yes. So we have Prague versus Carlson in the finals. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, there was a, there was a hometown player, um, Abasov, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tournament's being held in Azerbaijan. I believe Abasov, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, he's an Azeri player, right. Mm-hmm. And he had played extremely well. Um, and there was a tweet going around that apparently, uh, allegedly, uh, Abasov himself had also been banned from chess.com. Did you see this? Uh, I didn't see that, but, um, there, I remember, Back in our old ICC days, like he, yeah, he, I, I, I don't know if he was on that list that, you know, that, that famous list that came out. Um, yeah, I do where, remember like, there was one published. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of them maybe were like questionable, but I know I could verify some of them for sure. But like, I know back in like the Dos Hermanas days um, 
maybe like right around there. Um, yeah, he was definitely like spoke like uh, talked about quite a bit in terms of you know being a cheat. Wow. Yeah. So there was there was an there was an interesting tweet, and my my question is this though: When is the speaks for itself meme going to die in the chess world? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to just use that phrase without you know. I, I guess maybe when people stop finding on passant amusing. <laughs> Like, yeah, what's this glitch? <laughs> Shut up, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I, I, um, I myself tweeted about on Passant, but it was because I was, a, I was aboard a Delta Airlines flight. And there was a game that you could play. You could play on the Delta Airlines. You know how they have those computers in the back of the headrest sometimes um, on planes? You can, like, watch movies and stuff. Uh, no, well, I'm a peasant, but yeah, go on. <laughs> there was one where you could play chess. And I played the computer game of chess and I attempted to play on passant and it just had no idea what on passant was. Um, so I, I tweeted at Delta airlines to fix their machines. So I just texted you my favorite chess meme, which maybe we, it's time to wrap up. So we're not going to talk about it here, but perhaps that could be a future topic. <laughs> I love it. Yes, absolutely. And we should, we should um, find a higher quality image of this and probably include this in the show notes also. Well, but or maybe for next time, or maybe for next time. Yeah, fair point. We always need that hashtag content. Um, well, go, Paul. This has been a lot of fun. I, I really hope our listeners have enjoyed as well uh, hearing some of our thoughts, uh, our personal list on the um, underrated, uh, unappreciated players from chess history. Uh, any final comments, thoughts, musings, ramblings, poetic uh, interludes? Um... Not really. Uh, yeah, we're going to have this like uh, studies assembled for y'all in the show notes uh, when right. it comes out. So We'll clean it uh, up. We'll hopefully. make it look nice and pretty so you guys can play through all of the games and, and studies mentioned. Uh, yeah, yeah, please do. Um, I guarantee you it'll be, it'll be a nice, like you'll enjoy yourself and hopefully find some inspiration. And uh, yeah, hopefully these players become some of your favorite underappreciated players, underrated players uh, as well. All right. Awesome. Well, for uh, Gopal Menon, this is your host, Pete Karianis. It's been another wonderful month in the underground. We'll see you next time. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. Thank you.